Good morning, good evening, good afternoon. Welcome to another episode of Two Developers Down Under. I am joined, as always, with the lopsidedly lovable Kai Koenig. How are you doing today, Kai? I'm doing fine, Mark. How are you? Good morning. <laughs> good morning. <laughs> this is episode number 34, Four. right? Yes. What an effort, given that we're doing that for like three years or something like that. <laughs> Actually, now, now you've actually got me wondering when did we start, and now I'm thinking about average. Uh, <laughs> what's the average time between podcasts? Um, I'll have a quick look. Here we into go. go. When First we... one, uh, February fourteenth, two thousand and eleven. Yeah, I told you it's, it's roughly three years, basically. Okay. I think the initial idea was we wanted to do one every week, right? So that didn't quite work out. <laughs> I thought it was more like every fortnight, maybe. Yeah, that also didn't quite work out. <laughs> so actually, it's not too bad. So we have 34 divided by, say, three, if you're saying three years, which is a bit inaccurate, but that's fine. That's, that's 11 per year, so it's almost one a month, almost. Yeah, but in reality, it's not three it, years, but three years and two months, so it's um, 38 months. So how do we stack against that? Uh, so, uh, so we do like 0.9 of a podcast per month. Okay. <laughs> yeah, that's not bad. It's not bad, though. You know, no, it's, it's not. It's not bad. We ha- we do have stretches where it's like three months between podcasts, and then we do three in a month. That is true, actually. Yeah, that is, is kind true? of right. Yeah. Well, anyway, I'm sure our listeners don't really care how often we do podcasts. I'm, sometimes I wonder if we do have listeners, but you know, I we guess have some. We have some stats. people. We have yeah. A, yeah, we, we, yeah, we have some. Oh, that's all, it was me reloading, you know. <laughs> you, you listening over and over again, <laughs> just to make yourself feel better. Um, okay, so moving moving forward, we got some stuff that uh, happened today. Yeah, so today is um, Good Friday for people who are you know into into those festivities, and I've got two reasonably interesting things okay. um, outside of that. One is today is the 108th anniversary of the San Francisco earthquake. The oh, big yeah. one in 1906. Oh, yep, yep, yep. I see that one too. Yep. Oh, you see that one? I Where see did that you... one. I've got, it, I've got it in my list as well. Yep. Ah, uh, okay. In your list. Oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> and I had something else. Let me just have another look. With it. Oh, yeah. The cornerstone of the... Um, St. Peter's Basilica in Rome was laid today in 1506. So that's how many years? 514 years ago. Okay. I think I think I can beat that. i got a few of them. Um, the only reason I know this is because I saw a trailer for a movie of it last night. Uh, Grace Kelly marries the Prince Rainer of Monaco. Oh, really? 58th anniversary. So there is a movie coming about There's that? There's a movie oh. coming out. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, what's her name? Oh, I've totally blanked on what her name is. You should be married to Tom Cruise. You know, like everyone else. Okay. The, the blonde one. Nicole Kidman, she's playing it. Um, the Republic of Zimbab- Zimbabwe was formed, 34th anniversary of that. That is Rhodesia, right? Or what used to be Rhodesia in the colony days in Africa? Sure, I have no idea. <laughs> I'll okay. For it. Um, this is an interesting one, I quite like this one. Joan of Arc is, uh, I'm going to pronounce this right, beatified in Rome. Which I actually had to look up because I'm like, that just sounds painful. But apparently it's actually recognition according to the Catholic Church of a dead person's entrance into heaven. Really? Uh, beautification is the third of the four steps in the canonization process. 
uh, like even I didn't even flat. know there are four steps, to be honest. <laughs> so, apparently there are. So, interesting. I thought that was quite interesting. Um, I had a few other ones. You did the South African. The Yankee Stadium opens. Apparently the first laundrette ever opened today, 80th anniversary. Oh, okay. Um, first crossword puzzle book was published today, 90th anniversary. The Telegraph ticker was patented today, 168th anniversary. Um, and I just, I, I have to bring this up because of, of our history. Adobe Systems acquired Macromedia today in 2005. Oh, funny. Okay. Yep. Which I thought was a good one too. Yeah, the sad day of Adobe <laughs> by Macromedia. Well, you know. <laughs> there was, yep. That was a long time ago. Feels mm, like. Yep. Ago. I was still living, I remember that day actually, because I was still living in Germany and we um, were driving, I was driving with a colleague at the time in a car back to the office. Um, from some sort of a meeting about a project or something like that. And mm. we got a text from someone in the office, like in capitals, Adobe bought Macromedia or something along oh, those really? lines. And it was like, oh my fucking God. I don't remember where I was or what I was doing. But clearly, it didn't have that much impact on me. Well, back at the time, it probably should have because probably. you were quite heavily in confusion back then, right? Yeah, yeah. I'm just trying to remember. It's like, um, yeah. I think I just went, oh, yeah, whatever. <laughs> yeah, I don't think I want to go into the depth of my feelings for, you know, that purchase. But <laughs> it's I don't think it was, like, a good move, really, for the yeah. technologies that Adobe used to have. Oh, yeah. Uh, well, it's, Micromedia I, like, used to have. Yeah, I mean, like, Flash is fine, you know. That's that's okay, and, you know. Um... Yeah, it's doing great, right, Flash? It's like <laughs> mainstream, mainstream technology that everyone... Users nowadays. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know if we're gonna hundred percent put that on Adobe's shoulders. I think I think HTML5 is doing stuff. Yeah, to be fair, I mean that's obviously market forces that played into that. But yeah. you know, like a part of it is, from my point of view, the the inability of Adobe to understand Macromedia's developer technologies. To put it in like one sentence. Fair enough. They never they never got it. Basically, they are a tooling they're, they're company, tooling. and they always will be. Yeah. yeah. That's true. That's true. All right. On to, yeah, less ranty and grumpy. Um, tell you what, why don't you, we've got a huge sh- of stuff to talk th- about. That wasn't grumpy. You should hear me being grumpy. Yeah, I know. I've, I mean, heard, I've heard you be grumpy. I know. I know. There's, there's, grumpy. okay. Yeah. I remember grumpy from when we were organizing a conference and we threatened not to have vegetarian food. I know what grumpy looks like. Exactly. <laughs> there you go. Um, why don't you pick something at random from the list? Go on. We got a huge list. We could something talk about. Yeah. random from the list. Yeah. Okay. So I, I'm totally random, and I'm saying like Mark is going to Camp JS. <laughs> that is really random. Okay. Cool. <laughs> so I'm going to Camp JS, which should be really interesting, considering I really don't program that much JavaScript. Um, I know a whole bunch of people who are going, and they're like, "You should go," and I was like, "Okay, why not? Sounds like fun." Um, also, I've never been to a camp event before. I've only ever been to conferences, so I'm kind of um, nervous and excited and expecting a lot of hazing. Um, so is it going to be a camp like the Rails camps where they basically have, you know, no internet and like like it's really isolated? Or is it just a camp event in a type or in a way that it's more an unconference 
than a conference. Well, it, it is a camp. It is at a campground. I believe internet will be somewhat limited. Um, okay. From what I understand, from what some of the some of the conversations I've been seeing going on, um, I believe tents are optional, and I believe yeah, all the I think there are sessions and workshops that are set up, um, but I think yep. it's very much a walk in, walk out if you want to, you know, like it's it's all fairly free form, and there'll be a bunch of like hacking spots and whatnot. So um, it's it's um, yeah, I'm 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 almost no idea what to expect. It's about an hour's drive from where I am, so. Um, there are a few things I'm kind of interested in. There's, uh, what was there? What was there? What was there? There was a few stuff. Going down the list, going down the list. There was a Haskell workshop. I was like, ooh, that looks good. There's a WebRTC workshop, which looks quite interesting. I've mucked around a little bit with WebRTC, and it's kind of cool stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, oh, there's, a, of course, WebGL. Anything to do with 3D stuff and gaming. I'm just, uh, that sounds like awesome. Um, yeah, anything to do with functional programming. I'm like, yeah, let's do that. Yeah, functional, functional JavaScript. I was like, all right, let's do that. Okay. So it's at Lord Sommer's camp in Victoria. Yes. So that's Maybe. kind of, I'm just looking at a map. That's kind of a bit away from the city, right? Yes. Well, I'm looking at it. Yeah, it's about an hour's drive, I think, out from the city, or it was from my place anyway. Just trying to understand. Uh, it doesn't even show up on the map. <laughs> is it down there towards Phillip Island? Uh, roughly? Now you've got me looking it up again. It's funny enough, Google Maps doesn't okay. find it. I've got it. No, I've got it. Just type in Lord Summer's Camp. Okay, hang on. Ah, here we go. Yep. Yeah, it's all the way at the bottom of the jar. Yeah, that's hardly Melbourne. So that's right down past Frankston. So are you going to stay there, or what's your plan? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. No, what, I'm going to come home. <laughs> that should be crazy. I'm just going to take an hour's drive every day. Um, but you're not, not camping in a tent, right? No, I'm not bringing a tent, because uh, I'm soft. Um, okay. Yeah, I guess you wouldn't, actually. <laughs> you're trying to... What you, man, I can go in a tent if I want to. <laughs> exactly. If you want to. Yeah, I could totally stay in a tent. Yeah, yeah. I, I could totally too, but I just don't want don't to. Don't want to, yeah. Most of the time. Uh, my only, actually, my only thought is um, if it's shared rooms and suddenly there's somebody who snores, suddenly I'll be like, man, I wish I'd brought a tent and I could sleep by myself. You could maybe bring a tent and just, you know, pitch it up if you are in a room where someone snores. Yeah, I could do that. Of course, that would mean I'd have to go get a tent. Oh, okay. You don't even have a tent. Fair enough. Then. Oh yeah, I don't have a tent. That would, but that would mean that I would need to go to the camping store. Which, by the way, camping stores are awesome. <laughs> really? Yeah. Oh my god. Yeah. So there's a camping store Anaconda here. I walked in to get some stuff ages ago. Actually, I went to get a pump to fill up a kiddie pool, like with air. And I'm like, there's tents and machetes and rope and things that serial killers use. <laughs> <laughs> and like, oh my like, god, Mark. All the gadgets, like the camping gadgets, like the, the like space heaters and cooking stuff, and like it's like full of just cool gadgets that make me want to go camping. Really? Yeah. And now camp, camping stores are on kind of the same level of excitement for me, like a hardware store or yeah, gadget yeah. store. And I, I hate them, basically. Oh, no, no. Hardware stores are great. Oh, oh my god. Hardware stores are the best. <laughs> There's like all the things that make me want to do manly things, like 
cut things and draw things and bash things with hammers. Not that I can really like I can kind of do that, but yeah, I think it's um Maybe you should rather let your wife do that stuff. You know, we have that agreement here, but that my wife is doing all those tooly oh, no, 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 things. No, That's no, just better. No. You know, I hurt myself and kill myself. No, no, I can I'm 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 reasonably handy. I can you know, I can put together IKEA furniture, I can drill stuff, I can I can... Well Mark, IKEA furniture, come on. That's not <laughs> skill. That's like if you can't do that you Oh no. Uh, there, uh, there is there is a skill in um there is there is a skill in uh which call it reading those instructions. No, I think I think it is a skill for you people in Australia because you didn't grow up with IKEA. You know, if you had grown up with IKEA like we did in yeah, Germany, yeah. it becomes part of your nature to build IKEA furniture because you do it every few weeks anyway. <laughs> but yeah, I can I can do reasonably handy stuff. I'm not I'm not complete you know I'm not completely unmanly that way. But in which no. way are you completely unmanly? <laughs> in a lot of ways. In a whole lot of ways. Uh, I don't even want to go there. I, think. <laughs> I, I won't deny that. I was in Scouts. I did Scouts for many, many. Oh, years. really? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Okay. I can I can tie knots and go out in the bush and sleep in a tent. I haven't done it for really. See, long, I but. I think the first time I learned to tie certain knots was when I started doing flying and I had to actually tie my plane down and I was doing it with like a totally amateur idiot knot and then someone taught me like a proper one that doesn't open instantly. He's <laughs> <laughs> just like, I'm just going to do it like I'm tying my shoelaces. That'll be fine. It's yeah. plane. Yeah, pretty much. Exactly. <laughs> it's, just, it's just a plane. It's not going anywhere. <laughs> uh, okay. So that was CampJS. That was the first random one. <laughs> Totally random, basically. No, you pick a random one from the list. Um, actually, yeah, let's talk about Google App Engine because they've been doing some interesting stuff lately, and I don't know if people have been seeing it. Um, so, what were you doing with it, basically? I, I, I heard that they have improved some things; that it's more powerful, yeah. and you can yeah. do more different things now with it. So, I'm actually going to take a small segue. Actually, I'm going to take a small segue. Um, for a while there, I should actually, I should actually step up to um the, the thing that says Mark is unemployed. Oh, that that thing. <laughs> that thing. <laughs> so, um, un- unfortunately, um, I stepped away from my startup a little while ago, uh, which was uh, a good decision for me. I wasn't very happy there. Um, good people, great products. Just I wasn't happy doing what I was doing. So, with the added pressure of putting a startup on top of that, I figured that was a really bad idea. Um, so yeah, I sort of like this when I I, I segue to this because we're looking at Google App Engine a lot, and I was playing around with Google App Engine a lot, which I'm doing far less of now because I'm not using it for anything, but um, mm-hmm. just wanted to put some context to it. So, um, yeah, I'm off to Europe next week, but when I get back at some point, I need to, like, look for work and probably look for some contracting stuff. Ooh. <laughs> yeah. But, um, yeah, I'm, I'm kind of hoping to find some closure contracting, but I'll code in just about anything these days. So, um, yeah. Code so, for money. Language coding. doesn't yeah. matter. I'm just the dude sitting on the corner with a piece of cardboard sign going, we'll code for food. Uh, <laughs> you shouldn't joke about that. I know. Just, you know, just wait for the next global financial crisis and it might be the truth. Yeah, exactly. I might actually be there. Just going, oh, just give me. <laughs> write HTML for food. Like, I think it'd be more like I write CSS for food. I think that's just uh, uh, Actually, I put this, I put this on, I put this on Twitter ages ago and no joke. Uh, this is a while ago now, but I have to share it. My wife actually had a nightmare about having to learn CSS. Really? Yes. Whoa. 
Oh. She woke up in the morning and she's like, I just had the worst dream. She's like, I had to learn CSS. I really didn't want to and it was horrible. Well, it kind of is. Oh, well, not, it, it's not horrible, but it can be horrible to a certain extent, obviously. Yeah. I just thought it was very amusing. Anyway, so that's all good fun. Um, so, yeah. Uh, but I want to talk about Google App Engine because, yeah, I think there's some interesting stuff happening there. Um Specifically, uh, a couple of things. Um, one of which is they now have stuff in Asia Pacific, which I thought. Yeah, was... I heard that actually. That's quite cool because it gives you a much better latency and everything, right? Yeah. So, so they've switched on support for compute engine zones in Asia Pacific, as well as deploying cloud storage and cloud SQL in Asia Pacific. So it doesn't look like they've got App Engine there, but um, they've got parts of what they're doing. Um, but the stuff they released at the recent, uh, they had an event, and it's slowly been tricking out. It's been interesting, and what they they titled it as bringing together the best of PaaS and IaaS. So for a long time, they've got like App Engine stuff, which I actually think mm-hmm. App Engine is pretty cool. Um, but it is very much a opinionated um, system. You know, it's like you have to work within their confines. Um, so, you know, there's no, there are certain restrictions so that they can scale up really big and scale yeah. down. It's got really nice auto-scaling capabilities, which I think is awesome. Um, but you also really have to look at how you structure your app and do, like, data queries and stuff so to keep your costs down because yeah. it, it is, like, per query costs money and all that sort of stuff. But using M- Memcache doesn't, you know, so you have to kind of look at that stuff. Um, okay. They also dropped all their prices too recently, which I thought was pretty cool. Um, but then on the flip side, they've also got the Google Compute Engine, which is very much like, uh, which I haven't looked at too deeply, so hopefully I don't get this too wrong. Um, but it's more like a, an infrastructure as a service, so like Amazon or, or, or similar, where you manage it yourself and it's like, I just do my own thing and that's all great. Um, but now they've actually got sort of a couple of, what have they got? So, here we go. Um, they've kind of got one that sits sort of in between, um, what they call them managed VMs. So it's basically okay. it's like it's basically a compute engine instance that can do stuff like um, that that you write that you write a oh, that's right it's coming back to me now. You write a declaration file of what's on it. So it becomes like a like a similar to like say a chef script or an ansible script or anything along those sort of lines that says here's the stuff I want on this machine. Um, but you can put whatever you want on it. So it's not like App Engine where you're limited to just their SDK and just the code they support. Um, you can push whatever you want. Um, you can do your own startup scripts and stuff like that. But it has to be it has to be you know templated because then they can auto scale and then they can do all that stuff that you can you can kill instances and start instances again and it just comes back up and it can manage all the load balancing for you without you having to mm-hmm. worry. It was actually cool. He um, he was doing a demo of, I think it was Node that was talking to, I want to say C code. I'll say C code just for argument's sake. Um, I think it was a Sudoku solver. And he brought it up together. So there was one compute instance that was running Node. Um, there was one of the compute, like there was a managed VM that was running Node that was talking to another managed VM that was running C. Um, and he was able to SSH into the C one really easily just through their, their, their command line stuff. Uh-huh muck around with it, see if there was anything going wrong. And then he was like, oh, but wait a minute. This is now a unique and individual snowflake because I've gone into it and I'm mucked with it. So let's just kill it. And he hits kill. And he's like, that doesn't matter. Because next time it gets requested or depending on your settings... It, it just comes back, basically. It just comes or back. Or they launch a new one, yeah. 
Yep. So it's like it's like you don't even have to worry about that sort of stuff um, when you've got so you've got the flexibility of basically you know um, infrastructure as a service, but sort of the deployability of platform as a service. So it's like okay, that's actually pretty cool. So what do those managed VMs run on? I mean, do you provide do you provide your own Linux? Or do they have like a... Um, now you're asking a fun question. It is... I'm almost 100% sure it's Linux. Um, I think they had... We introduced support for SUSE and Red Hat Enterprise Linux on Compute Engine December. Um, but interestingly enough, I thought I saw when I was looking at the templates, it looked like it was apt, like apt stuff, which makes me think it's Debian. It's but, Debian or something, yeah. Um... And deployment, this thing. Yeah, there's there's a few interesting things. Um, so the managed VM stuff, I think you need to sign up for. It's still early access, but I think it's pretty cool. Um, Google seems to be really kind of pushing their cloud platform. Um, well, they kind of they kind of need to, right, to be able to stay in that market because there are like obviously a whole bunch of other strong players popping up all over the place doing either infrastructure or platform as a service. I don't know how many people, how many people, I mean, it's actually, for me, the auto-scaling stuff. I mean, they've got really nice deployment tools. They actually, um, they also announced they're doing stuff where it'll do continuous integration for you as well for, on certain platforms in certain um, environments. Um, mm -hmm. They're really not so much for the managed VM stuff, but um, you've got, like, Git push to deploy and stuff. But it's the auto-scaling stuff, and there aren't... So there's these guys, there's... Amazon has their Elastic Load Balancers, Yep. Scaling. Um, the, that's a bit more, uh, there's a little bit, I think there's a bit more levers and buttons you need to pull to get that to work just right, whereas I think Google App Engine kind of works. It's You just kind of put some numbers into a template and it's pretty straightforward. Um, Is there any, any hosted solution that um, runs Docker instances? Yeah, see, I was wondering about that. I was wondering, like, is there anyone else out there that's doing that sort of auto-scaling? Um from last look at Heroku, it was kind of manual. You'd have to build your own. Like, you could easily go in and say, um, give me another instance. But mm -hmm. I don't know how much. But it wouldn't do it automatically, you mean? Don't. Yeah, I don't know if it would do it. I'm seeing some add-ons. I could be wrong, though. But, yeah, I'm seeing add-ons that do it um, and scripts that do it. But it's not really sort of out of the box. Mm, okay. Yeah, I'm seeing stuff that you can pay for. I mean, that's not bad. That's not a... Um, yeah, I don't know. I actually don't know. I haven't seen it pushed as a thing. Um, but yeah, if you're looking for that sort of auto-scalable architecture... Um, particularly, I mean, the nice thing as well with the Google App Engine stuff is they've got queuing built in, and they can you can auto scale based on queue size and things like that, which I think you can do with AWS, but you've got to set it all up yourself, whereas yeah. it's just kind of baked in. What um, languages did Google App Engine support before the managed VMs? It was basically Python and Java, wasn't it? Well, no, it's moved. It's um so this and this is how I got into Go actually. Um so it's uh PHP. Oh yeah, they have Go, I, I remember. Yeah. yeah. So there's yeah. PHP, Java, Python, Go, I think that's it. Uh, didn't even know they do PHP. Okay. Uh, it's probably a clever move given how widespread PHP is. Yeah, yeah. Um here we go. 
cool. App Engine, yeah, Python Engine, Pupus Go, yeah. Go's technically listed as experimental, but I don't really believe that. Um, yeah, and that's how I ended up getting into Go, because we were looking at Go and Google App Engine. Yep. Um, and um, they, they list that as the fastest runtime, because Go to. I wonder that they don't support um, JavaScript or some Node.js type of setup. Yeah. I mean, even, funny enough, even Microsoft is doing that with, you know, their Azure Cloud thing. They offer Node.js instances that you can pretty much, like, start up right away and get a Node app to run. Yeah, I guess they'd have to build out a whole SDK for it, so they're probably limiting what languages they uh, they work with. Mm, okay, yeah. But, um, good question. Don't know the answer. Cool. Uh, but, um, yeah, so I think it's actually something to kind of keep an eye on, uh, especially if you don't want to deal with all that DevOpsy stuff of managing deployments and making life easy. And Yeah, App Engine's got some neat stuff in it. Um, and the managed VM stuff looks pretty, pretty neat. Cool. I thought it was a nice, a nice platform. Um, do, 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 do. Was there anything else on App Engine I wanted to talk about? Talk about the price drop, talk about that. Data store is funky. Their data store stuff. Um, they, what, what is their data store? Their data store. So they have a MySQL, um, like an RES type deal. So they, they manage MySQL instances, um, for those who want to use more of a SQL stuff. But they have their data store, which is more, um, it's almost more of a NoSQL store. Um, but what makes it interesting is the way it works for consistency's sake. So, um, because they run on millions of servers, which is interesting to, to either think about and also see the status reports come through um, from their downtime. And the, mm-hmm. you, know, you get these status reports and like they're like, yeah, we had some downtime, so we put another you know 17 petabytes of data in there, another 50,000. <laughs> you're like, oh, that's just we just had some change lying in the in the couch, you know, of just you know 50,000 cores just lying around. So we just figured we'd chuck that in the network center and everything will be fine. <laughs> you're like, jeez. Um, but it's interesting because the way you manage consistency is through these parent-child relationships. And you mm-hmm. kind of have to really think about what you're doing. So if you put stuff into data store, it's eventually consistent. That's basically how it works. Because um, it scales over umpteen number of machines and you don't know where it's going to be at any given point in time. But what you can do is you can say, when I insert you know, uh, record wheel for car, I can say, the, the ID for this has a parent ID of whatever the car ID is. Yeah, so you, it's a relationship up to the parent key, or sort of like a parent key uh, relationship. It can't ever be changed. So if you want to take that wheel and put it on another car, you can't do it. Um, so you have to think about that. But then when you want to retrieve it, you say, hey, f- uh, let me look at everything that's an ancestor, so all the children of the car key. Mm-hmm. And then I want to do queries on the data below that. And that bit, that's actually consistent. What makes that fun, though, is that you have a one, it's, they say one second, I think in practicality it's actually a little less, um, a, a only one write per second for that individual car key. So you also okay. have to think about it from that perspective. So if you want consistency, you can have it within these, they call them uh, like entity groups, or um, I think it is. Um, so if you have like, multiple cars and you're only ever putting wheels on them every so often, that's okay. But if you wanted to put them over something entirely global, like only having a run right per second is really bad. So you have to really think about your data model like way up front 
so that you can yeah, get consistency sense. in the way that you want. Um, I believe that's because they're using Paxos for doing their consistency model and stuff, um, and their replication and, and all that sort of stuff. Um, and probably deals with a, you know when you have millions and millions of machines running a, a database, you know this is the sort of stuff you need to worry about. Um, so it becomes really interesting. Um, but it's incredibly flexible. It's NoSQL. It scales out the wazoo. Um, you know, you never have to worry about you know how much data you have in anything. You know, you pretty much have completely um, consistent like read times and write times. You know, except for variance within the network and all mm-hmm. those issues that way. But generally speaking, it's it's pretty good. Um, so yeah, it was it was interesting to dig into because I hadn't ever dealt with a, a, a platform like that where you it's that sort of weird relationship that defines a consistency. Of your data, oh, and then you, otherwise you just have to go. It's eventually consistent. So when it gets there, it gets there, which is okay in some circumstances. Yeah, um, you just kind of have to take that trade off. Okay, interesting. So yeah, that was. I think that's all my app engine stuff. Yeah, I need to have a look at that at some point. But, it's neat. Yeah. It's neat. It's. I think it's a good fit for some things, um, especially if you're doing like heaps of queuing. Um, and you want to auto scale it, like stuff like that. I just thought I was like, I looked at it, I'm like, yeah, that's pretty awesome. Okay. Cool. You don't need to manage your own infrastructure, which is nice. Yeah, I mean that's you know for all those offerings, obviously one of the yeah. big raw cards at the end of the day that you don't have to deal with all the nitty gritty of keeping your stuff alive and making sure it you know yeah. scales and it works in the first place. Yeah, not your problem. And you just have to worry about you. And the nice thing that Google App Engine does is they send you, um, you can actually go see what your estimated billing is, which Amazon hasn't done for a really long time, but now they've actually started to after I don't know how many years. Because otherwise with Amazon, I don't know how many times it's like, oh, here's a bill. And you're like, what the hell? <laughs> Where did that money go? Yeah. Um, whereas at least with App Engine and Cloud Engine, you know, you just go in and they're like, this is what we think your spend's going to be. Just letting you know. And you're like, oh, that's so nice. Thank you for being upfront with me. Cool. Anyway. That's good. What you got? Pick another one. Something you can talk more about. Um, I've done a machine learning MOOC recently. What's a MOOC? A MOOC is, uh, what is it called? Massive online blah, blah, blah course. Like, uh, well, like a, like a, uh, <laughs> Get like a, a massive online gaming thing. Yeah, yeah, just like learning a uh, massive open online course. Uh, okay, uh, interesting. Yeah. Uh, okay, like Coursera or yeah, like Coursera or like whatever Stanford Uni or whoever puts those courses yeah. online essentially. And that was really interesting. Um, it was about a tool called Weka. Yep. Which is a New Zealand bird, coincidentally, because the guys who initially wrote that tool and basically drive the development are from University of Waikato here in New Zealand, up in Hamilton. But that wasn't the reason why I took the course, that it's like a New Zealand thing or something like that. I was just interested in the tool for quite a while and um, then randomly saw that on Twitter and just thought, oh, I might do that. And it turns out it's a really nice tool to do classification and machine learning with it, I found. So the whole idea is essentially, I mean, the whole idea of, you know, data mining and machine learning and all that stuff Mm. is really at the end of the day that you want to be able to do something useful with your data, with all that stuff you store 
and you keep in your databases and you usually throw away after three months because you can't deal with it anymore. <laughs> well, that's really what a lot of people have to do, you know, because it's so much. And um, what Weka basically helps you with is taking those data sets that you have and explore them in the first place and just try out a whole bunch of machine learning algorithms for classification or for data processing against those um, data sets and then make you know potentially predictions on that and stuff and that's it's really interesting they have um, so that MOOC I did uh, was like an introduction into uh, machine learning and data mining with Weka and they focused pretty much on the on the UI based tooling that they have. So you mm. get like a little Java tool comes as a jar and um, you can load data sets into it and then you've got a, a so-called explorer tool which allows you to look at the data and apply algorithms to it, visually look at what algorithms do. So you can actually That's get cool. a, a visual visual clues on how the classification works. And if you don't want to use any of the pre-built algorithms, mm. um, you can actually hand-draw and hand-pick classification models as well. So you can say, this is my data set, and I basically plot it with you know, various axes and parameters set to, to certain things. And then I just classify it by drawing a rectangle or by drawing you know, like a shape around the data sets that be I know from the subject meta expert knowledge that they belong together. And then it builds a classifier based on that which can be really interesting as well. Okay. But it has like gazillions of classification algorithms in there from, you know, like really basic stuff like um, regression-based ones to, you know, tree-based classification with a thing called J48. And it's super, super interesting. Um, and they have a follow-on MOOC that starts, a follow-up MOOC that starts in two weeks, like more data mining with Weka. Yeah. And one of the things they're going to talk about there is um, how to use it in a more programmatic way. And they talk more about the math behind the algorithms and also um, what you can do or how you can use it with really large data sets because the stuff they showed and, you know, we went through in that first MOOC was pretty much about data sets, maybe a few thousand records which you can easily load into the tool to get a feeling for, you know, yeah, how ask. things work. But if you have like a data set with, I don't know, a million, two million, a million or a hundred million records, obviously a different ball game. And there are some mechanisms apparently to cluster things and to drive it programmatically and stuff like that. Mm. So there are ways to deal with that. Yeah, but I mean, if you, you know, if, if anyone's interested in getting started with that whole data mining and machine learning thing, Weka is definitely a really good tool for that. Mm. Um, because it visualizes a lot of the things and you get like an instant feeling for how well something worked, you know, and how well your algorithm accuracy is on your training set compared to, you know, what to other algorithms basically. So is this, is you're saying, so if, if you can apply it to like large data sets, is this something you can actually run in real time? Yeah, you can. Um, it obviously might you know, for massive data sets, it becomes then a performance issue. But in yep. general, you can because what the tool allows you to do is after you apply the classifier and you've got your training set and the tree model for that, for example, yeah. you can save it out as Java code. Ah, uh, that's good. 
that's and nice. then you've got like because it's all written in Java and it's basically a whole Java library. It's a bunch of jars. So is, is it a Java library that basically writes Java? Yes, essentially. Yeah, that works. And you know the tool, like the the UI tool, just uses the the Java library behind the behind the scenes. So if mm. you've got something that you think is working from working with the tool and exploring the data and trying out algorithms, you can basically get use that the code behind that as a starting point to hook it into your own application. Okay, that's actually pretty cool. Yeah, and it seems to be a really active development community around that, basically. It, it's funny. It's a tool that is around for a really long time. I remember um, way back when I was living in Germany in 2002 or 2003, I've seen the first articles popping up on Weka, but the people who used it then or described stuff in that article, they used it for text processing and text mining yep. like to find find certain things in like you know a massive text and stuff like that which you can do that's perfectly fine mm. uh, but i never saw it in the context of like data mining for for an actual data point of view yep um so but you know you can do that just fine with it as well okay so that is kind of really interesting yeah and they have a there is an a, a textbook as well which is not of you don't have to read the textbook to um to do the MOOC or to to work with the course. The course is basically video um, lessons and slides, and then you've got activities like you know exercises you have to do yourself and look into data, and they have like little tests after each unit, and that's done quite nicely actually. But the textbook is like more an academic textbook from the guys at University of Waikato who actually um, used that textbook for their actual university teaching. And I got that book and I read a few chapters in it and it's actually really interesting because as soon as you look into the actual algorithms and the different classification mechanisms a bit more, you start to understand like why certain things work for you know, certain types of data and mm. not for other types of data basically. That's really cool. Okay, that sounds pretty neat. Yeah, that made me think about um, that other link you talked about once in one of the previous podcasts. I can't, again, I can't remember what it was, but you had like a really good tutorial. Oh, the book. Classification, yeah. So Uh, we we forgot it again, right? Because we had that discussion just a days ago. I I put it in my bookmarks. Um, It's like machine learning. Machine learning book or something like that? I don't know. There we go. Oh, sod. Why did I not bookmark this? <laughs> so apparently there is that really good thing that both Mark and I continuously forget what the URL is, but we will put it into um, the blog post for this recording. <laughs> Um, what the hell is it? I always think it's Zen, but it's not. It's like um, machine learning for programmers or something. Uh, no, no. How did I how did I lose this again? I swear I bookmarked it. Yeah, maybe on one of your other of your of the, your ten machines or something like that. No, nah, it's all on Chrome, so you know it's. Oh, uh, it's, it's okay. It all syncs. Um, oh my god, I can't believe I didn't. 
wait, 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 wait. Um, let's get to the PDF. Programmer's Guide to Data Mining. Yes. Cool. We should make sure that that is part of our Google Doc that linked. <laughs> and then of the blog post that we ever that we can find it. Actually. Got it. Got it. Got it. Got it. Got it. Got it. All right. Okay, here we go. Cool. Uh, where's your wicked stuff? Boom. Guide to data mining. Yes, that's the URL. Guide to data mining dot com. Um, that I remember when you showed me that link a month ago. I had a quick look at that, and I went back to it when I was doing the Wicker MOOC. Yep. And there is a lot of similarity because I mean, what they basically do in that guide to data mining dot com ebook is. They teach you how to code those algorithms, right? How to yeah. code linear regression for classification, stuff like yep. that. Yeah. So in, in Weka comes from the other side, you know, that you don't have to code it. You can you just use it. it. Yeah. Tell it to use linear regression with those parameters and yep. apply it to your data set and see what the accuracy is and what the, yep. you know, what the model looks like and stuff like that. But I think, I think obviously, you know, it's like anything, you know, you need to have that basic understanding of yeah. theory. Otherwise you're just like, I'm going to throw spaghetti at a wall and see if it sticks. Yeah, exactly. Um, you know, you want to, and to be fair, you know, there is a quite big amount of math involved if you want to understand it properly. Yeah. Um, in that Weka MOOC, they try to isolate people a bit from that which yep. you know it's it's, it's fine I can I can look it up myself and you know if yeah. I want, want to know well, but I can, I can see why they do that because obviously mm. there's a lot of practitioners who have data sets but they might not necessarily have a massive math background mm. and then you know they would still want to be able to look at their data and do something with it and figure out strategies how to Proceed yep. without necessarily knowing well, yeah. I mean, how to, you know, how to do a linear regression. Manually. Yeah, I mean, you can do like, you know, recommendation systems or even categorization, and there's different like different functions and different um, maths for like calculating like closeness and distance between yeah. between things, and they each, each has a pro and con. But at the end of the day, you don't really need to care about why that distance algorithm works. You really just need to know, okay, so if I use this one, it's faster, but this one gives me more accurate and it's slower. You know, like you don't, yeah, exactly. to, you don't need to know the why. Um, but um, yeah, the, the link we put up, the Programmer's Guide to Dino Mining, um, is really good in that. I, I feel like it almost takes some like a head-first approach because um, it gets into the math, but it does it in a nice, gentle way. Okay. Um, and it's not like it's not like you're looking at a whole bunch of crazy symbols and you're and they're just like you know we've explained this because it's the sum of this to this and you're like what the hell I don't even know what a union set is symbol in it anymore I can't remember um, <laughs> you know like jeez I mean the last time I formally learned math was high school and I, I liked it then and I did a lot of it but I mean that was more than a few years ago. Did <laughs> you have to do some kind of math at uni? In your... I didn't actually. I did a bachelor of multimedia. Um, oh, right. So yeah, it's not a proper yeah. computer science degree. No, so. I did not do a proper computer science degree, which in some ways is good, in some ways is bad. Um, so, uh, yeah, so, yeah, I didn't have to do math in university, which I kind of miss, actually. I miss math every so often. I go back to it whenever I'm doing something. And I'm like, but this you, is fun. But you met Amy at uni in your degree, yes, right? That is true. Yes, either said it had something good. Yeah, like I Even though so it was good, only a bachelor of multimedia. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, it was a it was a special degree, uh, but it was no, it was a good degree in that we got a lot of freedom in the terms of what we what we ended up chasing, what we wanted to do. Yeah. Um, uh, but at the same time, it was a uh, yeah, it was yeah, it was yeah, it was an interesting course. It no longer exists, mind you. Oh, okay. 
um, which isn't surprising. But we got way off topic. Yep. <laughs> okay, way. so that, there's so much, you know, for the Wecker thing. So I can just recommend anyone who wants to, you know, get more into that. And Wecker's yeah. been around for a really long time. Yeah. Which yeah. is interesting as well. Um, it's a really stable solution, basically. Yeah. I think the current version they, you know, recommend for production is like 3.6, and there is a 3.7 that is out there for like bleeding edge type of thing, and I don't know exactly what the differences are. Yeah. But um, you know, it's very stable. Yeah. Seeing um, they seem to go through phases of like personalization and recommendations as a service. Um. I think maybe in like 2000 and uh, I'm going to totally screw up which year it was. I mean, about four or five years ago, there were a bunch of recommendation systems as a service, sort of little startups that popped up all over the place. And then they all kind of died or pivoted, I noticed. Um, and now it seems to be coming back, but people seem to be, it's more, I think I've seen a few where it's like, it's more like recommendations as a service for X, like for your e-commerce. Or rather than just like general mm. stuff, it's like we're going to do like this particular recommendation for you, and it's going to be awesome. I'm seeing a few more of those sort of pop up, which has been interesting to see. I I can see why you know potential clients might have some reservation about using a service for that. Oh yeah, totally. Because you're kind of essentially giving away your core business intelligence data to like mm. a third party, and then get something fed back. Um, but and, that being said, if you're an e-commerce store and you're just like, we just want recommendations and we don't want to spend a lot of time doing data mining, like, sweet. Yeah, that that is fair enough. But I think you can, you can probably – well, if you're a large e-commerce site, right, like a really large one. Then you'll build it in-house. I mean, that's just it. Then you will just build it basically, yeah. right? If you are a small mum-pop mom, type of shop yeah. that's maybe running on Shopify or some other platform. Yeah, exactly. Um, I can see I can see why you would basically why there would be an appeal to that because your core business data is on Shopify then anyway it doesn't really matter you know in the medium scale e-commerce you could kind of go either way with it it really depends Um, probably depends very much on your team depends on how quick to market you want to be Um, there's 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 probably a lot of factors there yeah in in that medium sized space though people might. You know, if they have their, if they host their own solution, they might be then again more, be more reluctant to give data away to a third party. Yeah, but at the same time, I don't know. like a few ad recommendations, it's going to be a ten percent boost in your conversion, and all you have to do is pay me fifty bucks a month. Something that's like, okay. Like, yeah, fair and, enough. In a lot of ways as well, you could just be like, let's do it for fifty bucks a month, and then if it goes great, then maybe we look at rolling our own. Yeah, that that is a fair point. On the other hand, you know, like if we talk about recommendation system for an e-commerce site, like for mm. a random online shop selling, I don't know, cat supplies or dog supplies or whatever, um, is you wonder how hard it is to do a basic recommendation model yourself. You know what I mean? It's like, well, you mm. sh- sure you could, you know, get a service to do it for fifty or hundred bucks a month. Yeah. But if you want to do something really simple, like a you know nearest distance type thing with yeah. regression, it takes you a few days to code it. Yeah, and I agree. I agree. But I think I think um, if you say to a lot of programmers, "Hey, build a recommendation system," they're going to go, "Oh, that's really scary. I don't know anything about math, or I can't remember my math, or I don't know anything about data mining." Or like, I, I agree. Like, actually, I think like that guide to data mining book allowed me to build a simple recommendation system that works quite well. Mm-hmm. 
and it's collaborative filtering. Uh, I can't remember which nearest algorithm I used, and it works in real time. We actually ended up throwing up on a graph engine, a graph database. We stuck it on Neo4j, but I actually don't think we actually had to. Um, we did it more to the mind of we'd be looking, doing more stuff in the future. But mm-hmm. um, yeah, I mean, it's not, it's not really hard. It, it isn't actually really hard. Um, at least like a basic model, you know, we're yeah. talking about the more complex ones, but like if you want to get something going, it's not rocket science to do that. No, it's actually not too bad. And that, yeah, that book, Guide to Data Mining, allowed me to do that. Like once I read through the book, I'm like, oh, this is actually like, it's pretty straightforward once you kind of, once you know the steps, but not knowing those steps and not knowing where to start can be pretty scary. So I can see yeah. that's going, oh, I need to service, which is fair enough. Nothing wrong with that. Yeah. Um, but data mining is very cool. Actually, there was a, there was a machine learning um, Coursera course that started at the beginning of this year that I'm kind of bummed I didn't jump on. Okay. I was, I was tempted. I was very busy at the time. So I was like, no, nah, I'm not going to do it. Um, I'm almost, I was almost tempted to come back and do it um, now, but I kind of, I think I know me, and if I'm not doing it with a bunch of other people and I'm not going to get the certificate at the end, I probably won't be as motivated to complete it. Yeah, I mean, that, to be honest, that was one of the drivers for that Wicca course because yeah. you get a certificate at the end, basically, and that was really nice, um, and it motivated me to do the final assessment and all that yeah, stuff, basically. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. And otherwise, it's too, it's too like easy. People that are doing it all at the same time, so there's a bit of a community around it. Yeah, I'm just taking a look now. There is, yeah, Stanford Machine Learning. Was it that one? Yeah, it was that one. Yeah, that's meant to be really good. I know a few people that have done it. Okay. Um, 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 10 weeks, 5 to 7 hours of work per week. Oh, interesting. Yeah, maybe when it comes around, I might, I might stick myself on the watch list for next year. Cool. Cool, cool. Yeah. Uh, should we briefly um, talk about Heartbleed? <laughs> sure. <sighs> I don't know what we could say that hasn't already been said, but... No, I was just, like, kind of puzzled about the lack of response from the CFML community. Well, what are they going to do? Most of the time they're running on NGINX or Apache or, like, their their SSL servers, like, SSL stuff is all, like, fronted. Like, it's nothing to do with, like, CFML, really. It's... It's the it's whatever is actually hosting the SSL certificate and what what open SSL like what SSL mechanism they're using. Yeah, obviously on the front end web server that's like clear, right? If you use Apache and that uses OpenSSL, you have an issue. I mean that's well for us, you know, looking at it, it's fairly simple to say, but for a lot of people it wouldn't be that clear. And I think um, there are a bunch of or there were a bunch of questions like. Could something be in Confusion or in Rylo or in Open Blue Dragon if someone is still using that? Um, well, they're Java-based and OpenSSL is a C, C library. Yeah, OpenSSL, that is true. But funny enough, there are a few um, scenarios, particularly with Tomcat, where there are native wrappers that hook oh, yeah. to OpenSSL. And if you run a Tomcat that is doing that with ColdFusion on it on top, for example, then that could theoretically be an issue, I think. So basically, if you're running Tomcat and don't have a front-end web server in front of your CF instance and Tomcat itself is serving out SSL certs, you might have an issue. Yeah, there is like a library <laughs> called um, TC Native or something like that. Uh-huh. 
um, that hooks into from Java using JNI into the native world of your whatever platform you're running on, and that is a potential problem if you, you know, if you run a Tomcat installation like that. But anything else, it's yeah, just quite straightforward. Yeah. Did you see the XKCD um, Heartbleed? Comment? No, I didn't. Oh, it's like the best description. It's um, well, actually, we should put it on the blog. We should put it in our post. It's pretty awesome. I'm just looking it up now, actually. Actually, uh, Heartbleed. The How best. the Heartbleed bug works? <laughs> okay. Yeah, it's actually a really good visualization of exactly how Heartbleed works. Uh, reply, Bert. Bert. Hat. <laughs> yep. Cool. That is kind of exactly what it is. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah, so at the end of the day, to, you know, like put it out there for the people who use CFML, I don't think any of the actual server products, both Rilo or Confusion, are vulnerable as such. Um, yeah, but I mean, it's it's the same problem anyone running, running a, any language these days is, you know, like you'd have some sort of front-end web server serving out your SSL certs, and so that's where you, your concern needs to lie. Yeah, exactly. The interesting thing is, um, you know, the there was hardly any communication from Adobe, and I saw that on Twitter. There were, like, a whole bunch of Twitter discussions and streams um, where people were basically urging Adobe to at least come up with a statement saying, like, you know, Confusion is not vulnerable, even if you run it on our Tomcat. There's nothing in there, you know, that is a problem. And um, so from the official Confusion team, the response was, we can't talk about it because the Adobe policy is the Adobe security response team, whatever, PSIT or PSIR or something like that, have to respond to that. And they just went silent. Okay. And given the, to be fair, given the history of Confusion in terms of hacks, you know, in the last 18 months and security vulnerabilities and stuff, you would think you want to be a bit proactive with your customers. And, you know, even though there is nothing in there because it's all Java, it's not vulnerable, you want to say, yep, there is nothing in there. It's not vulnerable because it's all Java and OpenSSL is a C++ library. You know, you really want to communicate that because people are like kind panicking. of panicking and like, oh, shit, another, you know, vulnerability and I get hacked again and blah, 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 whatever. Uh. Oh, I have to share this. This is this is definitely how not to deal with it. Um, Commonwealth Bank here in Australia, they they put out. They put that was it, awesome. I saw did that. Did you yeah. see that? That was just. <laughs> oh, was like a, Jesus Christ! It was the best train wreck I've ever seen ever. And they've they've yep. put an update up, which is good to fix it. Um, uh, but what they they wrote that I'm happy to report that our customers can rest assured we are patched against the heartbeat plug, and you do not need to change your NetBank password. Uh, this is a testament to the hard work of our security teams who constantly monitor and stay abreast of the latest security technology trends and updates. Um, though, from f- basically what, what they've actually found their update is they got lucky because they didn't use OpenSSL. Um, they, yeah, <laughs> it's, they it's got nothing to do with their security teams. They got no, lucky. It's, End it's of story. Just, it's just built on IS, IIS and ASP.NET. Yeah. Yep. Um, which is which is funny, but the, what was awful was watching everyone go, that's great that you're patched now, but what about the past two years? 
that's the real freaking concern. And if you're patched, like, why wouldn't we have to change our passwords? That's right, exactly. You know? <laughs> and so they, all they had was this person on there, and he must have written it 50 times, just saying, hi, such and such, we, you do not need to change your NetBank password. We are a patched against the heartbeat plug. We are dedicated to ensuring our data and that of customers is safe and secure. And then here's the next one. Hi, such and such. We are patched against the heartbeat plug. We are dedicated to ensuring our data and that of our customers is safe and secure. And there's all these people just asking questions like, that's great, but what about the past two years? Hey, that's great. What about the past two years? And all he ever responds with, hi, such and such. We are patched against the heartbeat plug. We are dedicated to ensuring our data and that of our customers is safe. It was just awful to watch. See, the problem is really if you give that responsibility to a random comms person, that's just going to blow up into your face, basically. But, you know? It's like but, if you have to make a technical statement, actually, I, you I, need I, to have a technician to make I that statement. Back. I take a step back and hire good comms people. Hire a good comms person who goes, I don't know how to answer this question. Let me escalate it. Yeah, maybe. <laughs> like, 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 basically hire someone who has the ability to turn it around and say, I don't know. Yeah, so maybe the Commonwealth Bank needs to hire less interns then. Yeah. To do their yeah, less, comms shit. <laughs> or less, uh, better social media interns, maybe. Something like that. Or pay a decent wage. I don't know. Uh, <laughs> oh, man. Fun. Yeah, other than having, you know, potentially, you know, who knows? Who knows exactly who was writing that? Um, hopefully, you know, they didn't lose their job over it um, because, you know, I like people, but, like, seriously, just take them off that job. Like, just take, like, that's just bad. Or maybe they had, like, a policy, you know, like, if someone asks a question, this is the response you have to give. And it might not even be that person's fault. It's maybe just the organization's fault because the organization yeah. is, you know, dysfunctional. Yeah. And I've seen that in a lot of places yeah. where, you know, you have, like, some clueless people running a comms department, basically. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Again, then better comms department. Like, there's, there's, fix that. Like, that's just bad. It's just really bad. Uh, I, there shouldn't, there shouldn't be any stigma against going. That's a great question. I'll get back to you. Yeah. You know, like, that's that's not a bad thing. In fact, I respect any company that can do that. Practically, to be honest, any person that can do that way more for giving me that response than trying to make something up or give me a canned response. Like, that just makes me feel bad and gives, just makes me think that you don't know what you're doing. Yeah, correct. And, I mean, um, it obviously assumes that the person then actually does get back to you, that it doesn't get lost, yeah. you know, well, they're, like... Well, that happens quite often as well. You know, like you just like, yeah, I get back to you. Never heard again. <laughs> yeah, actually, that happened to me once. At, total segue. That happened to me once at university. The first, um, the first year, we had this one particular teacher. We had um, who I was like, oh, he's so cool. Like he, he really knows his stuff. He's you know a really good technical guy. And rah, rah, rah. so first year university, bright eyed, you know, know nothing, um, just very green <laughs> and naive. <laughs> Um, I was like, oh, yeah, yeah, you know, stuff, this is really cool. And then he ended up going off to do some startup that I think eventually failed. And um, he came back to teaching, and I had him in, I want to say, third year or possibly even honors. And he was teaching some, we were doing, it was a course on J2EE. Yeah, it was a course on J2EE. We were building stuff in J2EE, which I had somewhat of a familiarity with anyway, because I've been doing a bunch of Java stuff. Mm-hmm. And I realized throughout that course that if you asked him a question he didn't know, he would make shit up. Mm, yep. And suddenly I went from bright, you know, bright-eyed star child, oh, wow, he's wonderful, to, oh, my God, this man does not deserve my respect. 
like, I just went from one completely to another where I was just like, why are you telling us stuff that's just wrong? Like, especially in teaching role. Um, yeah. I just, oh, it was, and it was, it was a, it was one of those moments where I just went, okay, yeah, yeah, I was a bit naive before. That's fair enough. Uh, people, people have their own issues and all that sort of stuff. But, um, yeah, it was just one of those things where I'm like, you know, just say that you don't know. Like, that's cool. Or we'll look it up or whatever. Yeah, but see, that's, you know, sometimes, I mean, not in, in an Australian context often, but sometimes it's a cultural thing as well, right? Depending that on is which, true. Where people come from. You know, in, in Asian cultures, it's quite common to that it's difficult to admit that you don't know anything, for example. Yeah. So you have to always keep that into in, in mind as well. You know? He was like, Australian. I don't take that away from him. <laughs> no, that's fine. Yeah. You know, I'm not right. saying that. Totally right. That is, yeah. Yeah. In, in certain cultures, you ask someone, can you do this? And they go, yes, of course. Yep. Um, which is fun. I wonder, yeah, that's a, that's an interesting one, but that's all cultural review. Yep. So, how long are we going for already? We're nearly at an hour, aren't we? Yeah, we're, uh, we chatted for a bit beforehand, we're at an hour 20, hour, hour 15. Um, you wanna talk about what, we'll talk about one more thing. I got one more thing we can talk about. Okay. Um, the, my oh my god I'm an idiot reaction. That yeah, I was wondering about that. So what is that about? Yeah, so um, I started doing some more game development stuff because um, I have this weird notion that someday I'm going to become this indie game developer, which will probably never happen. But you know, it's a nice dream. <laughs> and um, but um, I've been writing I'm writing a whole bunch more closure because I've got some more free time and I really like closure. Um, and if anyone wants to pay me to write closure, I'd be really happy. And um, just putting it out there. Just right? putting it out there. Um, and um, no, I just I just had this complete idiot moment. So I wrote this library. Uh, I called it Brute. I put a blog post up about it. It's, um, it's a library for doing entity component system architecture for gaming. I can't remember if we've talked about it before. It's basically a game architecture library. Um, it's a okay. set of architecting games that's uh, really flexible and good and stuff. And um, and what I, how do I explain this without explaining closure? So, um, closure is functional and it tries to, um, push forward being, being a functional programming language. It, it tries to push forward like, uh, immutability. So, you know, if you, you don't change the state of something, what you actually do is you just create a whole new version of it and hand that out. Um, mm -hmm. it has a bunch of stuff under the hood. Um, and it tries to push forward purity in functions. So functions don't change state. So yep. you know, data structure comes in, data structure comes out. So what did I do? I completely ignored all of that. Um, that's, that's a good start. <laughs> yeah, that's a good start. Yeah, totally. So I wrote this this thing. So um, in entity component systems, you have these things called entities. They're basically IDs, and you attach components to them, which is basically data, right? Mm -hmm. So what have I done? I set up a um, I set up a global variable. So Clojure does give you some tools for managing states, and it does it in some really nice ways. Um, but as I'm writing this library, I'm storing all this entity data in a place, and you know, and then I attach the component data. And every time it comes in, I'm updating these global variables. And the whole time I'm writing it, I'm thinking to myself, okay, let's think about the threading aspects and if you have multiple processes coming in. And the whole time I should have been doing that. And if I was thinking those things, I should have gone, no, no, what you are doing is bad. <laughs> because the whole point of immutability and pureness enclosure and any other functional language is that you don't need to worry about threading and concurrency and all that stuff because mm -hmm. it's data in, data out. That's that's the whole bloody point, mm -hmm. right? 
so I wrote this whole library, and even though I was thinking these things about, um, you know, threading and stuff like that, I just went, all right, no, 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 I think, I think this is going to work as a library. I think I'm on the right path. I think this is going to work. And so I released it. And there's a bunch of people who were like, yeah, this is cool. I like it. Uh, that's great. And then about 10 minutes later, I get this thing on GitHub going, this whole global variable thing, that's probably pretty bad, and here's why. Oh. Um, actually, I'll, I'll link to the GitHub. Um, and actually, it was really awesome that he did that. Um, that he went through the effort yeah, of explaining. He through, uh, yeah. yeah, he goes, reading the library, one thing that stuck out to me is sore thumb. Every single facet of this is stored inside a globally shared atoms. Uh, this means it's impossible to do simulations, which is yeah, so testing and stuff in your CS. It's also impossible to have more than one instance of this at once. Um, and it's kind of a code smell, and it's just kind of bad. Um, and so I was like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And then I was like, okay, yes, I need to rewrite this, which is pretty much what I've been doing. Um, because he's totally right. And we had some backups and forwards. So there was a, a few good takeaways from this, one of which was um, writing functional stuff. Uh, immutability is, should be good. You know, that's that's what you should be doing. So really, mm -hmm. the way it should work is you um, you create an entity and you add to the system and it spits back out a functional, you know, you, you pass in your functional, your data structure, you know, and when you add an entity, it spits back out a data structure with that entity attached to it. You know, if you yep. create a component, you know, and you just you're just passing in and out data structures. That's that's the way it should work. Um, so I've rewritten it so that it does that. Um, but that was my big aha moment where I'm like, oh my god, I should have been realizing this the whole time. But um, it was a good moment to have. Um, I'm gonna write a whole blog post on it when I when I actually uh, end up re-releasing this with all its updates in it. Um, and it means that all of a sudden now. What that means is you can go create me, you know, the, the initial data structure for the entity component system. I could have four of them. So if you have different screens on your game, you could have four different component systems all set up, which is great. Um, you have direct access to all the data, which is great. Um, it means now that you can manage all your own. If you have like high levels of concurrency, you can manage it all yourself, and you know exactly what's happening and when things are going to change. Again, which is really good. Because uh -huh. I actually went through my code, and I'm like, oh, wait a minute. The way I've got it now doesn't actually save you from like multi-threaded issues. It just hides them from you and means you can screw it up, which is all the bad stuff that we're trying to get away from by having immutable data structures and pure programming. <laughs> um, so I just went, oh, that was really stupid. Um, and the other good thing I wanted to take away from this was this is why you write open source code. Because you get feedback. You get you feedback. Yep. And, you know, it took me a few days to write this. I'm sure I screwed it up. But, you know, what's the worst thing? I get a little bit of hurt pride. That's fine. I can do that. And now I've walked away going, this is going to change how I write, you know, closure programs. Like, it's just finally that light bulb went off. And I just went, now I would never, ever, ever make this mistake again. Yeah, exactly. And that's, that is a really useful thing. You know, I think we would have, like, in general, much better code out there if... People put their things under peer review in whatever form more often. It doesn't even have to be open source necessarily. You know, even if you just put it into, if you implement a peer review system within your company in your organization or something like that, you know, just that helps yeah. quite often. Yep, yeah, yep, yeah, yep. Yeah. But um, now it was really nice of that guy to take his time to just go, let's let's talk about this. Because I think this is this is cool, but the way you've done it could be a whole lot better. Yeah, cool. Um, so that was useful. Yeah, that was good fun. That was good fun. So I've re I've rewritten 
I've rewritten Brute, but I need to rewrite. Um, I have wrote a Pong clone, which is great fun, by the way. Um, okay. <laughs> well, I was like, I was like, okay, I'm going to be using Closure to write a game, which I haven't done before. I've written some fun stuff in Closure, but nothing to completion. Um, using my entity component system library, which I've never done before because it's a brand new library. Um, it's um, using another library called PlaySealJ, which runs on top of LibGDX, which is a great Java library for writing games. I haven't mm-hmm. anything with LibGDX before or PlaySealJ. All right, let's just lock down the scope of the game. <laughs> yeah, maybe that is a good idea. <laughs> yeah, let, let's Pong. Everyone, like, I know exactly what it is I need to build. There's no variations. There's no problems. Oh, I know exactly what it is that I'm doing. And so I can concentrate on all the other stuff that I don't know and then leave this. This is this is there. It's two battles and a ball, and we're good. Um, so does it run in the web, or how does it work? It's a, No, you just it's a Java app. Oh, okay. I could actually, considering it's on libgdx, I could export it out to... Uh, I don't think there's bindings for PlayCLJ, but in theory, since it's libgdx, you can actually output it to WebGL. It does WebGL, it does Android, it does iOS, it does native. Yeah. Um, libgdx is actually pretty awesome. Um, but um, yeah, so I just need to fix that up and just make a decision on how I want to do it in that. But it actually makes things a lot simpler in a lot of ways too. So uh, I'll, re- I'll re-release that in a little while. But yeah, I really like Clojure. I really do. Big fan. <laughs> cool. Okay. Um, should we call it fits there? Yes. Okay. Um, anything? So we've got some more stuff left over for the next one, actually. Yep. Which would have been a quite interesting topic, but yeah, we just yeah. going further at a later date if you want. Yep. Um. Cool. All right. Do you? Where can people reach you? Um, via Twitter, at Agent K, or um, via my blog, blockinblack.de, or um, on Google+, Plus with just my name, and um, that's pretty much you about it. You use Plus more lately? Um, not yet. I was looking at it and thinking about it a bit, because um, I read an interesting article about how Google is actually integrating Plus into their search engine ranks more and yes. more yes, using a thing called author rank. And I found a few good like um, recommendations from a guy who does like SEO stuff, um, how to hook, for example, your blog and other articles and stuff you wrote into um, that author rank system oh. by, by setting, you know, clever, clever links with clever attributes between okay. your Google plus profile and your blog and all that stuff. So I've tried that actually just two days ago and start to set that up a little bit. Can you so, check that on check that on the, the thing? I'd like to read that. It's unfortunately an article from a German magazine, so oh. you would not really be able to read it. Yeah. I can still put the link on there because I think that article is actually online, and you can try to run it through Google Translate and see how it goes. But, yeah, that's the maximum I can offer. <laughs> Fair enough. No, I've, seen, I've noticed a few more... I've seen more some technical people starting to move. I don't know about away from Twitter, but over to Google Plus a bit more. Yeah, I mean it has a benefit, right? And that benefit is it breaks that stupid 140 characters limitation. Yeah. And for some kind of discussions or statements you want to make, it's just I think it could be a nicer environment, and we'll just see how it goes. I guess I don't know. 
Fair enough. Okay, well, if people want to reach me, actually, probably the best way is now through my website, compoundtheory.com, where you'll find links to my Twitter account, my GitHub account, uh, email, Skype, uh, Desktopper, Google+, Plus, Lanyard, SoundCloud, all the usual, all the, all the good stuff. Um, but if you want to just bug me on Twitter, it's probably the best way, neurotic. Um, I think that's about it. Otherwise, uh, yeah, I'm off to Europe next week, which will be good fun. And if anyone's heading off to Camp JS, please make sure to come say hello. I'll be I'll be very interested to see if we had any listeners from Camp JS. <laughs> I yeah, that, I mean your Europe trip should be quite cool. I'm off to Europe in two weeks as well. Very nice, very nice. I got a wedding in August as well that I'm going away for as well. I got a bit of Where's that in Europe? Uh, London, yeah, London. Ooh, nice. So You're going with your wife this time? Yes, going with my wife this time. Okay, yeah, it would be, probably be hard to justify two overseas trips to Europe without her. Yes, in a year. yes, yes, yes. I think she'd be very upset. Apparently, uh, I've been told we need to go to Paris for a little bit as well while we're there. Oh, really? I'm not a big fan of Paris. Yeah, me either. It's... I don't know. I mean, maybe it was just me, or it is just... Maybe it's just us, I don't know. But I... I don't know. I I didn't really... I I didn't mind it. Like I don't think I'm like I hate that city, but I didn't. Yeah, I, yeah there are other the... parts of France I like a lot more. I'll put it that way. Yeah, I wouldn't say I hate Paris, but it's I don't have the urge to go back either. No, you know, it's no. like yeah, Paris exists and that's fine. But I'd go back know... to like Nice or maybe like Bordeaux or, or like I. I was never actually a big France fan. Fun, fun enough. Okay. Um. When we've been to Rome last year on our holiday, I wasn't, a, you know, before that I wasn't a big Rome fan either. And I think, yeah. I think with all those European capitals, the problem is if you go there to do the, the common touristy stuff, mm. it's always like a very mixed bag, right? I mean, I'm not a big fan of standing in a queue for three hours to watch the Vatican or something like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so I'm, I, I don't like those generic mainstream tourism things in general but rome after having been there now once it is actually a nice city if you avoid those massive things you know those massive tourist attractions if you find like a few more niche places it's actually awesome and the food is awesome and the coffee is awesome so that's kind of nice um and yeah i don't know paris just didn't yeah yeah i think it also came down to like the people i met and in France, like the element, we had people in Nice, whereas Paris wasn't nearly as exciting. I really enjoyed Barcelona in Spain. Had a ball there. I've never been to Spain, funny enough. Yeah, Spain's good. I like Spain. Um, you should go to Holland, Amsterdam, and Rotterdam. Those places are yeah, quite nice. Yeah, that'd be good fun. That would be good fun. Um, anyway, we should probably wrap up. Yes, we should wrap up. We should wrap up. It was okay. a pleasure again to talk to you, Mr. Mandel, uh, and um, I'll talk to you soon. All right, I'll see you later. Cool. <laughs> bye bye. Bye.